it is a GCONF week. Oh, yes. We don't have any insight of, of what's coming. But what I did was I went and asked someone who does know. And so we can talk about AGConf because it's this week. And by the po- time that the podcast comes out, it will be all open to everybody. But I guess I should start with what AGConf is. Yes. Because talking to you three, you'll know. <laughs> but this is sometimes yeah. what I forget is this is a public podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so AGConf is where the one time a year where the entire company gets together to talk about the year that we've had and look ahead to the future year and, and what we're going to do, what we want to achieve. And generally, there's a, like a theme of the year. For the last couple of years, it's been space because we're all nerds. And so there's some really exciting stuff. Would you like to know what's in store? Or would you like me to keep it kind of secret? Oh, I want to know. Um, I want to know, yeah. I want to know. Like, tell me about all the celebrity uh, appearances, all of it. Like, I want to I know everything. Okay, so there is going to be like a digital area of a space station that we can that we can explore. That's pretty cool. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because last year it was our virtual cruise ship, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, this year it's like a virtual space station. Nice. So we've got someone to come and cook a recipe. Did you both um, get your get your T-shirts? Yes. Yes, yes. I've got all the swag. That's always quite cool. Every, every year we, you know, we send out some T-shirts to everybody and usually they are some sort of pun. But this year we've gone punless. <laughs> I, I still love them. I, I think it's great. They're all kind of space themed. Yeah. To help the space theme, we have an actual astronaut coming to talk to us. Oh. <gasps> Is it Buzz Aldrin? It's not Buzz Aldrin. Is it Chris Hadfield? It isn't. No, it's Joan Higginbotham. She's an electrical engineer and a former NASA astronaut. She was. She flew aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery missions and is the third African-American woman to go into space. Nice. No, this is super cool. I I was kind of worried about this coming week because we've had builders in and all, all sorts of like everything seems to be let's get it fixed in the last couple of weeks. And... I wanted some nice peace and quiet for like for this week of reflecting on the year and doing tons of planning about what's coming. And all the time, I'm going to move my microphone away from my mouth for a second so you can get kind of the the gist of, of what was going on last week in my house. <laughs> and that was pretty much my life. So you need to get up into space for some peace and quiet, Matt. Yes, 100%. That's really something. You need the, the silence of space. I think the silence of space would actually be quite horrid. That's that's too quiet. Yeah, it's pretty freaky. Yeah. So with all of that over with, I think it's time for some Watchtower Weekly. Let's do it. Let's get into it. I've, I have been scouring the internets and sending in creepy story after creepy story in the hopes that they appear in this part of the show. You've been on your research <laughs> because uh, you what, what I do like is that you obviously don't have Slack on your phone. So instead of putting them in the room <laughs> where we both put them, you instead email both of us, which is a lot easier for you, but then does also push yeah. the emphasis onto other people. And not even in the same email chain as well, just a separate email. Yeah, just a complete share sheet one. send. That's it. Just <laughs> hit that share sheet up, fire it away. <laughs> I this do. is no longer Would my problem. That I do? <laughs> so much so that I had to message you and be like, is this actually you, Rue? <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't come from my work account because I don't have my work email on my phone either. So you're right. Like it's. Uh... <laughs> 
Yeah. Would you prefer that I text it to you? <laughs> At all hours of the day. We're, we're, we're going to need some sort yeah. of uh, Rue filter now. In the time zones as well. That's, uh, that's going to be fun. Oh. All right. This first one. Mandatory Olympics iOS and Android apps are spying on athletes for China. This sounds hideous immediately. This one on Apple Insider. So a researcher has found that the mandatory Beijing 2022 Olympics app for iOS and Android is collecting and sending audio to Chinese servers. So on Thursday, researcher Jonathan Scott had posted his findings after reverse engineering the mandatory My 2022 Olympics app. As it turns out, the app is capable of spying on Olympians and attendees and sending the audio to Chinese servers to be analysed. So it is a non-optional app that must be used by both athletes and attendees. The app is designed to help reduce the spread of COVID-19 and act as a central hub for information on events, weather, travel and points of interest, etc. So the App Store listing claims that the app does not collect data. Though Scott has clearly shown that it does. Instead, it actively listens to all of the audio and sends it off to servers based in China. If the app is moved to the background, it will force itself to the foreground to ensure that it has permission to listen in. Yes, uh, this one's kind of horrible. I dislike every element of this. Yeah, I mean, the horrible thing is, like, how did they get it around all of the Apple and Android things that monitor this type of stuff? I don't know. Except that like, it could be an enterprise certificate distribution, in which case it bypasses the App Store completely. No. So for iOS, a monitor is triggered and it brings the app uh, up to the front. It's apparently like Alexa and Siri, which is always listening for keywords. Oh. Yeah, it's not great. Um, so yeah, Jonathan has, has kind of decompiled it and put it on to GitHub for others to, to take a look as well. This idea of a mandatory app that you must install on in your device when you enter the country is really something. I've heard of athletes bringing and others bringing burner phones instead. Just, nope, just going to leave my personal devices at home. I'll bring this this burner phone instead. But even still, like... It's spying on you the whole time you're there. So you basically have to be on guard with what you're saying 24-7. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, obviously, like, this is not for entering the country, but it is for entering the the games. Like, the, you know, this is your ticket mm-hmm. for getting in. But it is one step, you know, away from having to have a state-mandated app <laughs> that does this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They've used the contact tracing element of, of COVID-19 as, like, an excuse to essentially funnel all of the this other stuff in there right yeah and don't athletes already have enough to think about when trying to prepare for the olympics like they already have the grueling training and the drug testing and this just is just another thing for them to have to stress about right yeah yep so this next one ozzy osbourne's nft project that's a sentence i never thought i would say (laughs) (laughs) shared a scam link and followers lost thousands of dollars this is from the verge So when a pop cultural icon like Ozzy Osbourne announces an NFT collection, you can count on the project getting quite a bit of publicity. The launch of Crypto Bats. This is because he ate the head of a bat, right? Oh, no. Did he actually do that? Or is that urban legend? I'll look it up on Snopes while you're you're reading out the story. Okay. This is a series (laughs) of 9,666 digital bats received coverage in outlets like Rolling Stone, NME, and Business Insider. But just two days after the tokens were minted, supporters were being targeted by a phishing scam that drains cryptocurrency from their wallets, playing off a bad link shared by the project's official Twitter account. So like the majority of NFT projects, CryptoBats uses Discord as a place to organise its community. 
the official Crypto Bats Discord, again, a sentence I never thought I'd say, uh, is now accessed through the short link. Uh, but previously, the project uh, used to use a slightly different vanity URL. When the project switched to the new URL, Scammer set up a fake Discord server at the old one, but neither Crypto Bats nor Ozzy Osbourne took the precaution of deleting tweets referencing the previous URL. Are we really blaming Ozzy Osbourne for this? Like, is <laughs> is this his manager using his, like, his name? Or do we think that Ozzy Osbourne likes NFTs? I don't know. I feel like I wouldn't trust anything I mean, that involved Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One tweet from CryptoBats posted on 31st of December 2021 received more than 4,000 retweets and hundreds of replies. The tweet was only then removed on January 21st. Uh, So on clicking the scam link, the invite panel for the fake Discord showed the total number of members as 1,300, an indication of the number of people who had potentially been fooled by this scam. Like, they were all in the the fake discord inside the server a bot spoofing community management services collabland asked users to verify their crypto assets to participate in the server but it directed users to a phishing site where they were then prompted to connect their cryptocurrency wallets tim silman a non-profit employee is one person who lost money through the scam silman estimates that around 300 to 400 dollars in ethereum was drained from his wallet after he visited the fake discord server through a link posted on the the CryptoBats website. So an Ethereum wallet address Silman indicated was linked to the scammers had received a series of incoming transactions totaling 14.6 ETH or $40,000 and sent on to a wallet containing more than 150,000. This one has a number of red flags. I don't think this thing has anything but red flags. Like, I, I get the whole collecting NFTs. Actually, I don't get it. Mm. Like, I, I get the idea. I don't think anyone gets NFTs, do they? I didn't get Beanie Babies either, but it didn't make them non-successful, did it? I, I think the the difficult thing with these is there's some people who are just making money from this and just open to the scam. And then there's people who genuinely want to be part of a community that collects stuff yeah yeah i guess just celebrity backed nfts in general it's just a huge red flag it is yeah i mean it's like an influencer selling you something on instagram right to date this back a bit if this was ozzy osbourne coming out with a series of vintage stamps and if you were a stamp collector and then someone sold you some dodgy stamps that he accidentally linked to it would be a similar kind of thing but I feel like it wouldn't make news because it's not NFT, right? Like, yeah. it's essentially the NFT element of this is just rife with scams because there is so much money there. Collecting stuff is fine. Like, sure, I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum. But I just think this whole thing is so rife with scams at the moment. And the whole thing of it being decentralized means that there's no one taking responsibility for the scams as well. I think that's the difficult thing. I don't think NFTs are a scam, but I also think that one day the collective consciousness is going to realize that they've been paying real money for fake things and everyone's just going to kind of go, wait, why did we do that? That was a terrible idea. That's probably true. It's no Beanie Baby. <laughs> it's no, they're no Beanie Babies. I mean, Beanie Babies were intrinsically <laughs> awful as well, though. Oh. Yeah, but they're going to make a comeback and my investment is going to be worth something. <laughs> yeah. just... I've got like a bag of them back at my mum's house. I'm just sitting on that and waiting to cash in. Oh my goodness. All right. Okay. You can't you can't talk about anybody's NFTs then. That's the thing. If someone wants a picture of a monkey in some sort of like 
funny hat or something. <laughs> that is a beanie baby. It just is. Is it a beanie baby with a tag on it? It's much more valuable. I mean, probably. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know how we got into this comparison, but... <laughs> All right. I enjoy this podcast of us. Uh, basically, three people talking about NFTs who don't really know anything about NFTs. Like, That's true. I'm coming at it from the principle of art. And if someone appreciates this as art, then sure, let them have it. Personally, I think NFTs seem to be an excuse to put out bad art and call it art. But there's been several similar movements where art is terrible, but people appreciate it as good. So I really can't judge. (laughs) All right, this last one. Apple's AirTag uncovers a secret German intelligence agency. So this is on Apple Insider. Apparently, your source for all the best intelligence agency <laughs> news uh, this this you week. Can, you could tell which ones came from me. <laughs> <laughs> I think Rue might read Apple Insider. <laughs> a researcher has sent one of Apple's AirTags to a mysterious federal authority in Germany to locate its true offices and to help prove that it's really part of an intelligence agency. So... Apple's AirTags have been used for a number of reasons, for good and for bad, in cases involving the tracking of individuals. But now a German researcher has used one in an expose of government secrets. So the activist Lilith Whitman claims that she has uncovered how German's little-known federal telecommunications service is actually a camouflage authority for a secret intelligence agency. So initially she wrote how she accidentally stumbled upon a federal authority that does not exist. And now Whitman has detailed her subsequent and extremely thorough attempts to prove her suspicion. Whitman includes transcripts of phone calls with officials whose cell numbers that she reports then cease working through calls like that, IP searches and even driving to official buildings. Whitman worked to track down the mysterious Bundeservice Telekommunikation uh, or Federal Communication te- uh, Telekommunikation or Federal... <laughs> I, I, I got how... the German bit right. Yeah, you, you did that one great. But the English bit, just clear nothing. Just stumbled. Or Federal Telecommunication Service. She establishes multiple reasons to believe it is part of the Federal Ministry of the Interior. Ultimately concludes that there are actually two camouflage authorities. Uh, both are allegedly part of a secret intelligence agency named the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution. This is some sci-fi almost stuff. So Whitman says that everyone she spoke to denied being a part of this intelligence agency. Well, you know. But what she describes as a good indicator would be if she could prove that the postal address for this federal authority actually leads to the intelligence services apparent offices. So... As a result, she sent a parcel with an air tag and watched through Apple's Find My system as it was delivered via the Berlin sorting office to a central sorting office in Cologne and then appears at the Office for the Protection of the Constitution in Cologne. So an air tag addressed to the telecommunications authority based in one part of Germany ends up in the offices of an intelligence agency based in another part of the country. Subsequent government press have denied that there is such a federal telecommunications service at all. Either this is a genius part of, like, investigative journalism, or this package looked dodgy, and so they sent it to the other office and was like, we're going to need you to uh, investigate this. I feel like this isn't kind of indication that the thing exists, but the method is very clever. Apple have gotten a, a bunch of flack recently for AirTags. 
like, do you think this could be come back on Apple as, as damaging? Do you think this, this product has a life because of this? Do you think this could be damaging to AirTags? Is that the question you're asking? Yeah, essentially. No. I mean... People seem to be using them for all different types of quite yeah. bad things at the moment. I definitely don't think Apple considered all these uses, did they, when they created the AirTag? Putting them through the post and sending them to people in order to find out their location... Like sending them to to PO boxes and then stalking them to find out their real location and stuff. Like that is pretty bad. I mean, you could do that before. Like there, things like this have existed. This person could have sent a GPS tag, you know, like one that you get for your for your dog getting lost or something. Like it's not new. Yeah, it, it could have been done regardless. It's more popular. Yeah, and it is cheap. Yes, it's very inexpensive, and it's built on the backs of an incredibly prevalent worldwide network, which is, I think, fascinating. So, like, this is one of those cases where, like, bad stuff like this is always going to happen, and now it's easier for it to happen, and so people are pointing at the thing that makes it easier to happen. I would agree, yes. Yeah. I did read a story about a woman who was able to track some shady movers with an air tag. Yes. So Me too. I loved that. Yeah. So I think it does have its place. They've got good uses. Yeah. It's just whether they fall into the right hands, right? So she was in the military, or she is in the military, and uh, they were moving from one base to another. And there was a moving company that I guess is common to use for this type of thing. But also she had heard from other military families that this moving company is kind of a shady dealer and that they would be late or tell you that things were, you know, missing. And so she put an air tag in with one of her boxes. And like on the day when things were supposed to be delivered, she got a call from the delivery driver that said like, oh, gosh, like it's still a week out. Like we're we're way back at the originating point. And she goes, no, you're not. You're four hours away. You should come deliver my stuff. And the guy got like really flustered and hung up on her and then called back later and apologized. He's like, I didn't realize you could track my location. I'm so sorry. I stopped to see my lady friend. I'll I'll be there with your stuff tomorrow. She's like, great, thanks. So like that stuff I think is awesome. Yeah, I agree. There's also that German dude who has been sending air tags around the world to see if he can get parcels to certain locations. Like he has sent an air tag to the German embassy in North Korea to see if it could actually be sent. It's just fascinating to sort of like watch. He's like, I can see my air tag sitting in this sorting facility here. DHL is telling me, I have no idea where your parcel is. And he's like, I, I know exactly where it is. <laughs> <laughs> the possibilities are endless, I think, with air tags. Yep. I, I think we're going to see a lot more stories like this where they're used in interesting investigative manners yep i agree all right rue so you spoke to jason meller from collide i sure did yeah he and i had a lovely chat about all sorts of things so collide makes endpoint management for use in corporate infrastructure and in talking to him I, you know we learned a lot about sort of their approach to it and also i didn't realize they're only a 13 person company right now which is impressive incredibly small yes impressive and and very small so uh, it was a good chat, and I'm guessing we'll probably... <laughs> no, don't say it. Just do oh. the trumpet. Oh. No, wait, which trumpet? <laughs> that one? No. What do you want from me? <laughs> no, no, no. The, the, the theme tune that plays before we drop in oh. an interview. It's because... all right. Rue doesn't listen to the show, so he's just... I don't know what you're talking about. Just get... <laughs> yeah, that one. We'll just drop that in here. Oh, right? Yes. Oh, dear. 
Joining me on the show today is Collide CEO and founder Jason Meller. From the founders of Honest Security, Collide is a new approach to endpoint management powered by people with a mission to make security part of your culture. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you for being here. No, thank you for having me. Can you start talking a little bit about what Collide does, your background, and how you got into the security space? Yeah, why don't we start with Collide? So Collide is an endpoint security and management product. And instead of achieving security and compliance goals by locking down devices, we take a completely different approach. It's a user-focused approach where we message employees directly on Slack about things that might not be right with their device. And then when we send them that message, we tell them what the problem is, why it's important to fix it. We give them step-by-step instructions on how to fix it. And then we even give them a button to verify right in Slack that they did it right. We think that is a much better way to resolve significant and hard to solve cybersecurity and compliance challenges on the device versus locking it down. But in a nutshell, that's what Collide is. That's really interesting. I have to imagine that there's a decent amount of privacy focus that goes into building a tool like this. Can you talk about some of the challenges that exist there? Yeah, absolutely. And and when we started Collide, it was so funny. We, we knew that we wanted to build something that had a user-focused security bent to it. You know, in my past, and this kind of goes back to your first question of, you know, where do I come from? I come from a place where I used to be somewhat of like a lead script kitty when I was like 12 or 13 years old, like building my first America Online progs to like punt people off of AIM and stuff like that. Like that's where I got my start in the security world, parlayed that into like doing IT support in college and kind of learning a little bit more about like the human side of it till, you know, I got my business degree and got my first job at GE and worked for the computer instant response team at GE, parlayed that into a commercial role at Mandiant and started building security products for them until eventually I found myself starting my own company at Collide. Throughout that whole journey though, there's been this, I've noticed that there's just been this cynicism around people in not just the IT world, but also the security world. Uh, You know, we hear it every day. It's the the things around end users are the weakest link. This is the root cause of all the cybersecurity challenges that we have to deal with. And we see it playing out in the industry, like training programs for, for phish campaigns, where you try to trick your end users into clicking the link and you say, gotcha, you know, now you have to take even more training because you did what everybody does, which is you look at emails and you click links, like that's kind of what they're for. But, you know, you failed this test and and now you need more like embarrassing training to go along with it. So this cynicism about people has sort of permeated the industry. And every single device management and security tool is really built on this foundation that end users need to be worked around, that they are part of the problem. And the only way to solve this problem in the space is to just work around them. So if you look at the state of play today, and you look at all the endpoint device management and security solutions out there, they're really built on this premise of automating it completely and locking down. So a lot of products out there, they'll kind of say, hey, you want to pass this audit, install this MDM solution, click this one button, and we're just going to slam closed all the things that can go wrong on the device. But they don't really consider the end user's needs or what they're even doing on those devices. That's like a secondary goal. It's Let's get these devices in a quote unquote secure state as quickly as possible. And that way we can, you know, claim victory on this audit. But the reality is, yeah, those devices look secure at a surface level. But now you have people that can't use this device to be productive. And what are they going to do? They're going to start using their personal devices. Now you've created a much larger problem. So Collide is really founded on the premise of what if this assumption that end users were the underlying problem they need to be worked around? What if that assumption was actually wrong? 
What if the end users were the key, actually, to unlock this new capability for us to solve the toughest endpoint management, security, compliance challenges that are out there? What are the things that we can solve if we can get the end users on our side and be a part of the overall challenge? And can we get some ancillary benefits along the way? Like, can we make them feel like they're a part of the security team? Can we make security a part of the culture of the organization? So that was really kind of the premise we went into when we built this product in 2019. And when we launched it, we just immediately found a market. So we were very naive in the beginning. You know, We built the Slack application and started reaching out to end users. And we found that people would get their first messages from Collide and be like, what the heck is this thing? Like, I'm <laughs> the first message that I'm getting is, hey, like you have all these problems, go fix them. And it's like, is this like a scam? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we realized, like, obviously, like, duh, we have to establish a relationship of trust with these users before we send that first message. So uh, that led us to our first big discovery about how to do this right, which is we need to have like a really well defined and well considered onboarding process. So most people, when they deploy like a new endpoint agent, they deploy it using their existing IT management tools already. You know, they just kind of blast it out there and it goes out. Um, But we figured at Collide, we're already leveraging Slack to reach out to people. What if we just introduce ourselves to all the end users and have them actually install the agent themselves? What would that look like? And can we use that as an opportunity to answer all their questions about privacy give them an opportunity to push back in a few areas and, you know, really kind of kick off the relationship like it was a conversation versus here are your orders, you know, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And so in order to get a user to do something, you need to already have that relationship, that trust relationship already somewhat established. And that's exactly what we do when, you know, our customers roll out, they do that onboarding process. That's really interesting. So I I have to imagine that the types of customers that you're getting at Collide are the types of corporations that probably have that relationship with their employees that those conversations are open and welcome and that it's not, as you said, just blasting it out and do what you're told, but it's more of like, a, hey, here's a new thing that we're rolling out. Let's have a discussion about it. Have you seen others glom onto this idea of user-first security? Like how pervasive is the mind share of like, just install the daemon and just force your users to do stuff? Like this is how you keep your company safe as opposed to your, you said, user-first approach. Yes, so this is certainly not a new idea. Actually, you can go all the way back to the 90s and there's this great paper by two PhD professors out of England. Name of the paper is Users Are Not the Enemy. And they're talking about essentially research that they've done on how like really oppressive password requirements actually cause end users to have worse overall security. Something that one password knows is like baked into your DNA as a company, like that's obvious, but this is all the way back in the 90s, which I found was really interesting. And they recommended this approach where if you can actually bring users in and really teach them the why, not just the how, you're going to actually significantly increase the overall security posture of your organization. So that was the first thing that I could see documented where it was really advocating for a user-first approach. Going forward past the 90s, Netflix, I think, is the first company that really marketed a user-focused approach, is how they call it. They created a bunch of tools to essentially replace the standard lock-it-down MDM-style approach to one where end users install this thing that kind of lives in their system tray and they get some 
recommendations on how to get any device, not just the device Netflix potentially provisions to them into a state that's acceptable to access specific resources at Netflix. The specific program is, I think, called Stethoscope. And that was a major inspiration to us because it was a company that was doing this at scale that embodied culture, elements of their culture embodied the customers that we were interacting with on a regular basis. And it felt like they were paving the way where this didn't feel like a major gamble for us to, to kind of move forward. Basecamp was another one. They had an internal program called ShipShape, where they essentially were running these test suites on their devices to kind of just verify they hit the bare minimum of what needed to be done on the device to kind of meet the security requirements and not necessarily prescribing specific programs to be running. But as long as like the firewall was on, it was reasonably up to date and X, Y, and Z, then device was allowed to access these specific resources. So I actually uh, spoke with you know some of the leaders in those organizations, and I still do. They were a major part of coloring our specific approach at Clyde before we went to market. That's really cool. Yeah, that's that's awesome to sort of have that almost like a partnership within the community of like people you can bounce ideas off and, and stuff. That's great. One of the things that we do internally at 1Password to help build relationships between our security team and the rest of the company is we give out monthly awards for those who bring potential security issues. We call it the Eyes of the Month Award. If they bring them to the attention of the security team, the hope is that it helps to eliminate the hesitance that usually comes with self-reporting. And also it just you know makes people feel good to, to sort of get an award every month and be on the lookout for those security snafus. Do you have similar measures at Collide? So today Collide is really small. We're, we're only 13 people as, at the time of this recording. Wow. Yeah, that might be surprising considering how many customers <laughs> that we have and things like that. We're growing really fast, but we're still quite small. So it's still a little bit too early for us to have that much of a defined program in, but certainly we will. I think it's really important to offer praise and even financial incentives for people to report security issues. And those are things that we're starting to think about baking into our product as well. One thing that Collide could do a better job of today is we're great at letting users know when things are starting to go off the rails on their device. But what about when things are going exactly perfect? And that exactly perfect is only possible if, you know, with the effort of the end user, like yeah. someone who updates their device right when they're supposed to. How do we get in the middle of that interaction happening and actually give praise to that user and you know, eventually give our customers an opportunity to reward them in a more meaningful way. Because I think that those types of regular incentives are are useful and potentially even necessary to build that culture. You know, we want to lead by example, but we also want, you know, there's major financial benefits for companies to actually be secure in this way. And so why not take the money that was going to be earmarked towards buying these solutions that are going to lock down the device and then, you know let it loose among the employees and, you know, have them, you know, be the beneficiaries of this, of this new program. They truly are part of the solution. Let's take some of that money and, and earmark it towards their interest. And I think that that's a really good use of it. So I think it's great that you guys have such a program because I think every company should have something like that. So we've done some research at 1Password recently on the scope and the impact of shadow IT, which you mentioned above, right? If the policies become too onerous, people will just go and do their own thing using whatever services they want to use or devices that they want to use. So I think you'll probably agree that it's critical that we start to think about how people use those devices instead of how we hope they use them. But what does that look like in practice? Like how, how do we design 
for that? Or how does an organization design for that? I'm so glad you asked this question because <laughs> this idea of really first putting a name on it, like shadow IT, uh, it's maybe not the best name in the world, but it's at least a name where we're identifying that end users are seeking out tools that they feel they need to do their job. And therefore, as a security and IT team, we need to acknowledge that and prepare for it. That's a great first step of even just putting a name on it. And I think the next step after that is instead of looking at people who you know, bring in these third-party tools that may, not, may or may not be sanctioned and then immediately chastising them or punishing them for it, it's about trying to understand and empathize with why are they reaching for those things. Is it because we have an education problem? They're not aware of existing alternative tools that might be better, that are free because we've already paid for them. So that could be problem number one. Or are we missing something? Do they need a tool that they don't necessarily have? And you know, how do we put them in a place where you know, we can get that on our radar before they just go and download it? But more, I think even better is, why are we afraid of these things? And are, can we distill down our fear of maybe specific types of applications into a much more actionable policy that we can apply through a product like Collide? So for example, maybe you're really worried about tools like Dropbox or Google Drive, because like you're going to inadvertently sync company proprietary data to like a personal space. I think that's a legitimate concern. But if your approach to that is, we're going to do everything in our power to block the end user's ability to even acquire those programs and install them, end users are just going to get frustrated. They're not going to understand why that's happening, and they're just going to work around you. And so how do you then do it the other way, which is, Look to see if that's happening and then now and you know have an encounter with the end user where you explain the why and then you give them the control where they can decide, okay, I understand why you know one pass, for instance, is telling me to, to get this off my device and now I want to you know remove it. That makes sense and I'm gonna go and do that. I think that's the much better way to go because then you reduce recidivism significantly. Because now they become educated, they understand the why, and maybe perhaps data has already transferred. And they're like, wow, you know what? This is the thing that they're saying they are afraid of is happening has already happened. Now I'm going to go report that to the IT team and we can kind of take care of that. That seems a way much, a much more powerful approach than to take this, like, let's just block things and maybe not fully explain why in situ. That just feels like a recipe for failure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I completely agree. And I think that the proactive nature of it is really important, especially when when you consider, you know, for instance, we have a policy against third-party browser extensions, right? Like don't install, pick your favorite browser extension, whether it's helping you shop online or it's checking your spelling and grammar for you or something like that, right? These are things that people are inundated with advertisements for every single day. Every YouTube video has an ad for one of those popular extensions. Right. And like we can't expect that people are going to constantly remember the policy of don't install that when they are, are being sold to do the opposite all the time. So having a way to be proactive about it, I think, is is fairly critical. And it's important to acknowledge with those two high-level examples that you have there, you know, they're getting deals or they're getting help with their grammar. Value is being added to the, you know, the reason they're installing these things is they are getting value out of it. Right. And so when you say you can't have that and you just end the conversation there, it feels punitive. It feels... Like, oh, I'm being told yeah. that I can't use a tool that I really like. But if you explain the why and you have links that say, hey, this thing is essentially a keylogger and we promise our customers that we don't use this type of thing or actually 
this program that's giving you deals is really kind of curating your browser history and selling that to advertisers. Maybe that's not a risk to us, but we just feel ethically bound to tell you that. As an employee here, we don't want you to fall prey to this. That's a much stronger case to be, but you can only make it if you have established a channel of communication with your end users. Because if you try to do that with a mass email, you're targeting people that, number one, probably don't have those extensions installed, so they ignore it. Number two, the attention span of someone being able to read a number of emails has has already been maxed out. Like Email is not the best way to get people's attention to these types of things, but Slack is a much better option if you can automate it and you can only target the people that are have those things installed, that's a much better position to be in. And then, you know, you're treating people like adults. And I think that's way better, yeah. way better. Yep, you're agreed. So we talk a lot about creating a culture of security, which has a lot in common with honest security, focusing on users and what they're trying to accomplish. We've talked a lot about that today already. But changing culture is easier than said than done. So what do you see as the biggest roadblocks to the culture change? And how do you overcome those roadblocks? Yeah, I think focusing this as a culture change is the right way to frame it because this isn't a technology problem like the MDM vendors try to make it out to be. This isn't a, let's install a piece of software, turn it on, and now we're done. This is really about winning the hearts and minds of your employees. So I think in practice, there's certain things that seem to coincide with a successful shift in culture. The most important to me is to show that leadership is on board, but it's also making sure that everybody's running it and that the end users know that this isn't, there haven't been like a multitude of special exceptions carved out. And then I think you need these very publicly visible leaders who are owning the change and they are points of contact for people to to raise legitimate questions and concerns. Every org, you need to have a conversation, you need to find that right balance. And that only can happen if you can have a communications infrastructure where you have leaders, that are really championing this change and they serve as points of contact where that feedback can filter through and then reach the people who can make the changes in the underlying system so that people feel like they can actually influence this program and that feedback isn't going into a bottomless black pit. So what's next? What's next for Collide? What what exciting things are you guys working on that you can share? We think that the next step for Collide is to really start understanding the places outside of Slack where we can actually make an impact. There's always going to be people who are either resistant or for whatever reason, they're just not super into Slack. And so the next phase for Collide is we already have a number of customers doing this with our API. They're starting to think about, all right, if someone is just completely ignoring the recommendations from the IT or the security team, what do we do next? And for many of those people, the most effective measure to do next is to take a proportionate response and maybe revoke their access to that specific resource. But what we don't want to happen is have people's access revoked and they don't understand why. So we want to be part of that sign-in experience where when you sign into a major application that's maybe fronted by SSO or, or anything, Collide could potentially provide device attestation information and we can provide the user experience that lets people know why they may not have access to something or maybe they're about to lose access to it and then give them the exact steps and how they can get that access back or prevent it from going away right in the browser, right when they're in the most motivated to get it done. And we think that's how we're going to squeeze out that last 10% um, so that people can really go all in on a user-first, you know, honest security, endpoint management security solution 
and get to 100% compliance across the board on every major objective. So that's going to be the next phase for Collide is how do we ensure that the companies that are trying to build a zero trust experience today, how do we get in the mix there and make sure zero trust doesn't mean you're locked out and you don't know why? How do we take the best part of Collide, which is the user experience of telling people the what, the why, and how do you get it done and get that embedded in that experience? That's a tall order. And that's really cool. Yeah. That's a, that's a hard problem, man. That's that's really something. It is a hard problem. But I think that that problem being solved in that specific area is going to be very valuable. All right. So last, where can people go to find out more about Collide or your book or anything else? So for Collide, you can just go to our website, K-O-L-I-D-E.com, Collide.com. And for Honest Security, it's actually honest.security. That's the full domain. Nice. Good get. It's actually sad that that domain was available. We registered in 2020. <laughs> it, was, it just wasn't registered. I think it's like kind of a commentary on the state of the industry. But their loss is our gain, honest.security. And uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow me personally on Twitter at jmeller, J-M-E-L-L-E-R, and collide at at collide. K-O-L-I-D-E. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so much. This was great. Take care. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Okay, so moving on to Ask One Password. This week, we have Max on Twitter who says, would love to hear someone talk about effective air-gapped digital security, i.e. a burner number for 2FA, maintaining more than one 1Password account, or using a wholly private or separate email account for account information. So what do we think about that? I think this is an interesting one, of course, depending on your, your threat model. This seems quite advanced. I think this is similar to having like an email address per service, right? Having a separate email address for everything that you then sign up to. I have a few of those, but I don't do it for each and everything, mainly because I can't I find it quite hard to keep a track of. This might be something that we, you know, look to to solve in the future. But I think most of the time using two of A with inside one password and using a different unique password for everything is enough of a gap that a service leaks everything it has it doesn't quite connect it to everything else the step you know on from that is to have then a separate email address for everything so when that account leaks something you need a different domain as well because then it the pattern becomes apparent right if two services have a data breach you then connect the two and you can make a pattern if someone needed to guess the email address that you used as a username for the next you know the third service so like if you really want to protect your email address i think you need a random email address almost not one that is the name of the service but this is something that you use if you've got a pretty advanced threat model. One thing that would be quite interesting is to have someone who does have a very advanced threat model come and talk on the show. The problem is, that's probably part of their threat model. (laughs) (laughs) And they don't want to share it, yeah. Exactly. But yeah, unique all the things as much as possible, but also you do have to use the internet and I feel like if you unique them too much you're kind of, you're putting yourself out. Security to be effective needs to be productive as well. And I feel like, you know, potentially a burner phone for 2FA Ooh, that's a whole nother level of like inconvenience. Like you're going to leave it at home. You're not going to charge it. You're going to leave it somewhere. <laughs> My vote would be unique email address is a, is a push. I only do that for certain services because again, you know, you don't want the same domain. So you've got to find different domain names for each of the things or something akin to that. 
So yeah, I think within reason, do this as much as possible. But my goodness, you go too far and you'll make your life really difficult. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully that helps answer your question there, Max. And if you're listening and you also have a question for us, you can write into the show using the Ask One Password hashtag on Twitter. Or you can send us an email at podcast at onepassword.com. All right. So I think it's time we move on to Ridiculous Requirements. Oh, let's do it. So welcome to Ridiculous Requirements, the game where we work together to come up with passwords not advised that fit the honestly terrible requirements. And this week, I thought it was time to get my own back because... We're going to do a capital city themed round of ridiculous requirements. Oh, what? Ooh. Are you ready? <laughs> no, opt out. Unsubscribe. I want to see how uh, Matt fares with his capital city knowledge because he's always making fun of us. <laughs> okay, so the requirements are it must contain the capital city of Vietnam, the capital city of Cuba, the capital city of Finland, and it must contain the capital city of Bermuda. All passwords... How do you say that one? Bermuda. Huh. Okay. <laughs> That's very Norfolk way of saying that, wasn't That's it? That's very Norfolk, uh, Bermuda. Bermuda. <laughs> I love it. No, it's... Well, so Bermuda is what I was looking for. Bermuda. <laughs> nope, you didn't... Okay. okay, we'll just carry on. All passwords must start with the same letter. One password must rhyme with banana. One password must also be the name of a popular musical, and two passwords must end with the letter I. All right, let's do the capital cities first. Um, (laughs) Please, please. Vietnam, any idea? Oh, God. Is it is it Hanoi? Oh yeah, it is Hanoi. Yeah, it is. All right, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So you've got your your first letter there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cuba, Havana. It must be Havana. That's the one who b- rhymes with banana. Havana, banana. Havana, banana. It is. Yep, I like it. Matt totally googled that one. No, he did not. I did not. <laughs> Capital of Cuba is obvious if you play enough Tropico. It's too small to have too many cities. It's fine. Finland. All passwords must start with the same letter. Uh, oh, Helsinki. Is that the capital of Finland? It is Helsinki. Yes, well done. So now you're looking for the capital city for Bermuda. Bermuda. Okay. It's a BOT, right? A British Overseas Territory. It is. So it's probably got a... Oh, who am I kidding? I've got no idea. All beginning with the same name. Okay. uh, No, I only know St. George. Oh, this riles me up so much. So much so, I've got my hand over my mouth, which is not great (laughs) for recording a podcast. Okay, so one password must also be na- the name of a popular musical. Okay, so we haven't got that yet, and it begins with H. So I'm guessing Hamilton. It is Hamilton. Oh, is that also the capital of Bermuda? It is. Hey, look at that. Of course, that makes sense. Neat. See, Matt was the missing piece of the puzzle with the capital city. Uh, two passwords must end with the letter I. So hang on, we've got it. Hanoi, Havana, Helsinki, Helsinki. and Hamilton. We did it. Okay. Amazing. You did it. All four capital cities nice well well that was fun i think we did it that wasn't as gut-wrenching as you thought it was gonna be no because i think the one that i didn't know well the two that i didn't know one one rue answered and one i just realized that we'd hit everything else and hadn't hit the popular musical and really i don't know that many musicals that would be a good one for next time uh i'm just glad this wasn't anna musicals yes musicals Oof. i think that would be a lot of fun yeah i'm just glad this wasn't anna and me just embarrassing ourselves about capital cities again <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love you both. I'm going to (laughs) go. Love you both. I'm going to go. Love you both. I'm going to go do other stuff. Okay. Bye. 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 Oh, we didn't say love you. I I just did. I did. You didn't. Oh, love you. (laughs) 
<laughs> there it is. Thank you. <laughs>